0: So uh, I've been married for, I'll be married for 16 years next weekend. Next weekend, uh, my wife and I will celebrate 16 years of marriage. And, you know, when we had been married for uh, probably about three years, uh, we, were, we found ourselves living in another country, planting a church. We were financially strapped and just trying to make ends meet and just living the adventure with God, you know, this, these newlyweds, no new kids. And, uh, man, I remember somewhere in there, around the third year of marriage, a friend of ours came to me and he said, hey, I know what church planting is like. I know how financially strapped you are. He's like, I've got a friend that would like to meet with you. He's a financial advisor, and he can help you make good financial decisions uh, to be able to do things right. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, yes, like sign me up. I have no idea how to make ends meet. I'm stretching pennies, trying to make things work. I said, I would love, it. I was like, this guy is just going to help me make good financial decisions. And my friend's like, yeah, exactly. He, he understands church planting, and he loves you, so. Anyways, so we sign up to meet with this guy, and um, I remember I had called my dad shortly thereafter, my dad's here this morning, and, and I called my dad, and I was like, yeah, dad, I got this financial advisor that wants to meet with us, and my, dad, my dad's response, he goes, who is this guy? And I'm like, well, I mean, dad, he, he, he's a good guy, like, he, he loves us, he has our best interests at heart, he goes... Just be careful. I'm afraid he's probably just going to try to sell you a bunch of insurance. And I'm like, Dad, why you got to be such a cynic? Like, why you got to be so negative? You know, like, can't you just believe in the goodness of humanity? Come on, Dad, you know? And and I'm like, No, everything's going to be fine. Well, we meet with this guy. And we get in about our third meeting with him, and sure enough, he comes out, he starts telling me all these different insurances that I need to buy and invest in. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I don't think this is what I signed up for. And, you know, if you're a financial advisor, I'm not throwing shade, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but this is, it was not what I expected, you know? And I was like, have you ever had one of those moments where you sign up for something and you get halfway through it or you get into it a little way and you're like, man, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not what I thought I had signed up for. And isn't it true that human nature and human experience kind of teaches us that, man, we we have to like question every offer that's laid on the table in front of us. In fact, we could all complete this saying, if it sounds too good to be true, then what? It is, it probably is, right? Like, we all know that. We're just like trained to kind of be on our guard for news that seems too good to be true. But, you know, one of the things that I absolutely love the most about Jesus is his blatant honesty and transparency about what it means to be one of his disciples. Like, when you read the Gospels, you get this impression, Jesus is not like a shmarmy salesman just trying to get you to sign the dotted line hoping that you don't read the fine print, No, Jesus is actually like the worst salesman ever. He's like taking out a magnifying glass and going, hey, did you see that fine print? Make sure you read the fine print. He's always drawing our attention to the fine print of what it means to be his disciple, what it means to follow him. You know, we've been in this series all summer about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? How do we practically live that out and follow him well with all of our lives? And tonight, we're gonna celebrate People getting baptized, people saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. But sometimes I wonder, like, do we understand what we're celebrating? Do we understand what it is that people are giving themselves to? For those of you that are being baptized, do you understand the significance of what it is that you are stepping into, the bigness of what it is that Jesus has invited us to? And here's the thing, I I, I want to talk about that this morning and as I look across this sea of faces, I believe that, that, that really all of us in here kind of land in one of two categories. Now, we say all the time, you know, hey, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here, and that is absolutely true. And I believe that all of us are in lots of different places, spiritually, maturity, all of that. But when you boil it down, everybody in this room is in one of two categories. There are some of you that have chosen to trust and follow Jesus, You've made a choice, you've confessed that you need Him as a Savior, and and you have submitted your life to Him as your Lord, and He calls the shots. You've been baptized into Him. You are persevering in faith as you walk with Him. That is one category. The other category are, are folks that have not chosen to trust and follow Jesus, you have not made the choice to submit to him, to confess your need for him as Savior. And, and I believe in that category, I know that we're kind of all over the map as far as where, why we have not made that decision. Some of you are still seeking. You're still asking questions. And I man, I'm so glad you're here. Like you're still asking questions about, ah, can I trust this Jesus guy? Is he, is he who he says he is? Some of you, you really do believe and you trust, but man, you're just uncertain because of like what it's going to cost. Like, man, what's this going to do to my family? what's my spouse going to think? What are my friends going to think? You know, what is this going to do to my job and my career? There's all kinds of implications that you have to weigh out. Some of you at one point made a decision to trust and follow Jesus, but if, if you were honest with yourself, you know that, man, you're not really walking with Jesus anymore, and you're not walking in his ways. You're not honoring what he has called you to And then there are others of you that are not interested in that at all, and and you came because somebody invited you today. Man, I'm so glad you're here. But these are the two categories, those who have chosen to trust and follow and those who have not. And I wanna speak to all of us to both categories this morning. Into to that first category, those of you who have committed to Jesus, I hope this morning feels like, just like a, a renewal of your vows, a reminder of what it is that you stepped into. My wife and I, every time we go to a wedding, we feel this when we watch the couple say their vows. It's like this reminder of, oh yeah, this is what we have covenanted to. This is what we have stepped into. And for those of you that have not chosen to trust and follow Jesus, I hope this morning just feels like an invitation. An invitation into the greatest gift you could ever receive, the greatest choice you could ever make with your life. We're going to examine what Jesus is inviting us into. And so we're going to start in Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 9. If you're using one of our Bibles, uh, you can find this on page 707. There's these orange Bibles on the bar and on the tables. You can grab one of those if you need it. It's page 707. And uh, we're going to start Luke chapter chapter 9. Uh, To tell you what's happening here, Jesus, it has just been revealed by one of the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And then Jesus is going to say some unexpected thing. This is like a classic example of Jesus putting a magnifying glass on the fine print of what it means to follow him. Let's start in verse 21. Then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, that he's the Messiah. And he said, The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord out of Luke 9. And so here's Jesus talking to his disciples about what it means to come after him, to follow him. And he starts with this. He says, hey, you must deny yourself every day. You must deny yourself, you must lay yourself aside. He says it this way, he says, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. In other words, if you live this life in such a way that puts yourself at the center, so you operate entirely based upon what makes you comfortable, what makes sense according to your truth, what is right or wrong according to how you think things should work, how you treat other people based on what you think they deserve. If you live your life with self at the center, he says you will lose your life. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. And then he says, but man, if you willingly lose your life for me, I will save your life. What does it mean to lose your life for Jesus? You know, the reality is, practically speaking for millions of our brothers and sisters around the world, it literally means they lose their life because they follow Jesus. That feels so far removed from us in the culture that we live in America, but it's a true reality. But I think very simply, the reason they lose their life is the same reason that if any number of things were to shift in our culture, it could mean us losing our life as well because see what it means to lose your life for Jesus means that you say, okay, Jesus, you are gonna be the Lord. You're gonna be the king. You're gonna call the shots. To lose your life for Jesus means that Jesus sets the parameters For you, around what is morally right and what is morally wrong. Jesus, as Lord, he gets to set the parameters and define what true justice looks like. Jesus gets to define things like gender and sexuality, and we submit to him and what he says. Jesus gets to set the purpose of your life and the direction of your life. Jesus gets to determine how you respond when you're mistreated by another person. Jesus gets to call the shots on how we leverage our finances. To lose our life for Jesus means that we put everything at his feet and he gets to call all the shots and we are surrendered to him. And see, when you live that way, when you live as though Jesus is the true Lord, sometimes it will cost you. Sometimes it will cost you. You know, I, I've seen this up close. I remember when I went to India and I remember sitting with some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in India who had chosen to follow Jesus. I remember one woman sitting there listening to her tell her story that when she gave her life to Jesus, that when her husband found out, he literally stabbed her tried to murder her because she turned away from Hinduism and brought shame on their family. And yet, when I watched her talk about Jesus, her face lit up with joy. It was like, wait, what? (laughs) What is that about? I remember a young man in India that I sat with and talked to, and literally when he gave his life to Jesus and his parents found out, his father beat him, kicked him out of the house, and disowned him as his son. And yet I got to sit and pray with this guy. And as I listened to him talk to Jesus, he would talk to Jesus and he would weep just tears of joy for the love that Jesus had shared with him. And I was like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) What is going on? You see, these these friends of ours, these brothers and sisters of ours in India, they realized that following Jesus means that they lose their life for him and it costs them greatly. I think about all across China, the underground church, our brothers and sisters over there, they are constantly aware of what it costs them. Uh, I was talking with a friend recently, and he was sharing with me uh, something that he heard that there's a large portion of the underground church in China that they have this pledge that they say when they get baptized. That when you want to get baptized there, there's this pledge they have you say, and we have it, we're going to put it up on the screen here. This is the pledge they say I am ready at any time and any place to suffer for the Lord, to be imprisoned for the Lord to escape for the Lord or to die for the Lord. What if this was the pledge that everyone was taking tonight before they got into the water? You see, guys, there are some real benefits to living in a place where we have so many freedoms. But guys, there are some downside as well is that we forget that Jesus said, I want your whole life, even when it costs you. And guys, the reality is, is it does cost us and it will cost you. You know, even here in, the, in this country, the costs are constantly getting higher. If you, if you make Jesus Lord and you live unashamedly where he calls the shots, you will face rejection from your friends. You will face exclusion where people don't invite you to the things they used to invite you to because they're, you don't do the things they did or they're afraid what you might say or look like. You will face being slandered, by your family. I know some of you right now in our church family that are being excluded from your family because of your deep convictions and love for Jesus. And your family doesn't want you around because of it. Guys, this is, this is the reality. We will face this even in our culture. And so we go, well, why? Like, why would we do that if we know that giving our life to Jesus comes at such a great cost? Like, why would we do that? And Jesus says this, he says, listen, if you will lose your life for me, I will save your life. I will save your life. And guys, I know that feels kind of like, you know, there's this kind of generalized Christian message in America today that's kind of like, hey, yeah, salvation. You give your life to Jesus and he'll save you from ever feeling bad about yourself again. There's salvation. Give your life to Jesus and he'll bless you and all your finances will go well and you'll have the house of your dreams and the family you've always longed for. Guys, this is not what Jesus is talking about right here. When Jesus says, I will save your life, he's talking about something very specific, very specific. You see, Jesus, Jesus believes and he teaches over and over again, very plainly, that humanity and creation are moving in a very clear trajectory. He hints at it here in Luke chapter nine. Did you notice that part where he says, whoever whoever is ashamed of me and my words... The Son of Man, which is Jesus, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father. You see, Jesus teaches that this whole thing, all humanity, all of creation is heading in a clear trajectory. And he hints at it here. But in Matthew chapter 13, he doesn't just hint at it. He paints a crystal clear picture of where it's going. So Matthew chapter 13, if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 667. 667. So, uh, you know, Jesus in Matthew 13, he's going to tell this story and I'll just retell the story and then we'll read what he says about it. But the story he tells goes like this. He says, let me tell you what the kingdom of of heaven is like. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who goes out and he, he sows some wheat in his field. And while he's sleeping, an enemy comes and sows a bunch of weeds in amongst the wheat. He says, then his servants notice that these weeds are growing up and they're like, master, what's going on? Didn't you plant good seed? He's like, yes, I planted good seed. An enemy has done this. And they go, well, do you want us to go in and pull all the weeds out? He goes, no, don't. He says, because while you're pulling out the weeds, you'll probably inadvertently uproot some of the wheat as well. Instead, let them grow together until the harvest. And when you harvest, harvest all of it. Separate the wheat from the weeds and throw the weeds in the fire and put the wheat in the barn. And that's the story. And so his disciples were like, what in the world is that about? And so later they come to him and they say, Jesus, what was that story about the weeds and the wheat? And Jesus explains it in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 37. This is Jesus' explanation. He says, "'The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. "'The field is the world, "'and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. "'The weeds are the people of the evil one, "'and the enemy who sows them is the devil.'" The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. It's in verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears to hear, hear. When Jesus says, whoever has ears, he's like, it's like, he's, he's like guys, listen, listen. This is so important. Look, I, I know we don't like to talk about this. It's here. It's the words of Jesus. It's what he teaches over and over again. Jesus says, listen, humanity's on a trajectory. He says, wickedness is going to grow up with righteousness in the world, and we are going to see an increase in wickedness as we approach the return of Jesus. He says, there's gonna be more, more wickedness. And I don't know if you know anything about gardening, but when the weeds start to grow up, the more the weeds grow, the harder it is for the plants to produce the fruit that they were called to, to produce, And Jesus is going, listen, guys, you got to pay attention. It's going to get harder and harder and harder to follow me wholeheartedly. The weeds are going to try to choke out what it is that I'm doing in you. He says there's coming a time when people will hate what is good. Paul talks about this in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's like, there's a a time coming where people call what is evil good and what is good evil, where people will only want to hear what their itching ears want to hear and they don't care about what God says is good anymore. He goes, that time is coming. It's gonna get harder and harder. And then Jesus makes it very clear. He says, the other thing that's coming, guys, the day of the Lord is coming. When the skies will open and the Son of Man will descend in the glory of God, of God's splendor. And God will execute justice on the earth according to what he says is right and wrong, according to what he says is good and evil. And guys, this is what is always referred to in the Bible as God's wrath and God's vengeance. It's sobering. We don't like to talk about it because it's sobering. It's like, we go, oh man. scriptures make it clear that there will be a cleansing of the earth to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. You see, guys, God is longing to restore creation to what it was meant to be. But in order to do that, sin and wickedness have to be crushed. And this is where the good news of Jesus comes in. Jesus says, listen, it doesn't have to go down that way for everyone. There will be a crushing. There will be the wrath of God unveiled against wickedness and sin and brokenness. He says, but you do not have to be the object of wrath, the recipient of wrath. He says, I want to save your life. I wanna save you. I wanna save you from it. I love the way the prophet Isaiah talks about this this moment, this, this day of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 35, verses three and four, it says this, Isaiah writes, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. Then listen to this, he will come to save you. He will come to save you. You see, Jesus says, I'm trying to save you from the increasing wickedness on the earth. I want to save you from the righteous wrath of God because of the sin of humanity. This is why whenever the gospel is preached, it is shared with an invitation to repent. It's acknowledging I need to be saved from my own wickedness. I need to be saved from my own sin that I am by nature an object of wrath. That's what the apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 2. I, I am by nature an object of wrath. And Jesus says, I'm longing to save your life. The apostle Paul would say that this is good because God longs for all people everywhere to come to knowledge of the truth and to be saved. This is the will of God that all would turn to Jesus, that all would be saved. This is what he longs for. And Jesus says, I will actually endure the suffering that belongs on your shoulders because of your sin. And that's why I'm laying down my life to open up the Door for you to be freed, for your life to be saved from eternal judgment. This is what Jesus holds out for us. He says, I'm trying to save your life. What's beautiful is that Jesus, he says, I'm going to try to save your life. I'm saving you from increased wickedness in the wrath of God, and I'm saving you into something completely different. <laughs> he says, I'm saving you from Increase wickedness and the wrath of God, and I'm saving you into something completely different. And this is where I, man, I, I was like, God, how do I begin to hold out the beauty of what it is that you're saving us into? How do, I, how, how do I help us? You know, the reality is that the friends of Jesus gave their lives to trying to help people understand the magnitude of what it is that Jesus is putting on the table for us. The entirety of the New Testament or Jesus' followers and friends writing and trying to help other people understand the bigness. And I'm like, I've got a little portion of a sermon to try to hold out the bigness of what it is. I'm like, I can't do it. And so I had a list of like 10 different bullet points. And I'm like, this is not gonna work. Like, there's too many things here. It's too deep. It's too rich. The bigness of what God has for you. And so I tried to just boil it down into five simple things. And so you see, he saves us He saves us from increasing wickedness and the wrath of God. But man, he saves us into something beautiful. He saves us into, number one, a new family, a new family. And guys, this isn't just a metaphor. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 29 to 31, Jesus said it this way, anyone who leaves father and mother, brother and sister, land or home in this age will receive a hundred times more. This is why my Indian brother and sister could sit there with joy. It had cost that woman her marriage. It had cost that boy his family. And he had received a hundredfold in the family of Jesus being loved with an unconditional love, being welcomed into the family of God. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, God says you are adopted as his child. You're adopted into his family. This is what Romans 8 says. You're adopted as a son or daughter. God becomes your dad. It's incredible. You're given a new family. For those of us who are struggling with loneliness, this is like some of the best news that we get to join in and be a part of the family of God. For those who are afraid of what their family will think if they choose to step into radical abandon of following Jesus, he says, I've got you. You got a new family. You're adopted into the family of God. But it's not just that you get a new family. You get new family genetics. That sounds kind of weird. But you get new family genetics. You know, my wife and I, we adopted our youngest daughter two years ago. And she's my daughter. Like, I love that girl. She's my daughter. I'm her daddy. Like, I love her but the reality is she still has the same physical DNA and genetics as she had when she was born. She doesn't have my DNA. But see, it's not that way when you're adopted into the family of God. You get a brand new spiritual DNA. Your spiritual DNA is shifted when you give your life to Jesus and are adopted into the family of God. Aaron, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Well, I think one of the best places I see this is in Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I'm going to put this on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul, again, just wrestling through what it means. He says, listen, I've been crucified with Christ. There it is. I've, I've denied myself. I've laid down my life. I've been crucified with Christ. And yet, even though I've been killed, I'm alive. I live. He says, but I, it is Christ that lives in me. Christ lives in me. It's this new identity that's living in me. He says, the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, you die, you, when you go into the, the, the watery grave of baptism, you are being buried into the death of Jesus. You're crucified with Christ, and when you come out, you come out a new creation, a new living being with a new spiritual DNA, full of the Holy Spirit of God who begins to rewire your very heart and your mind to want to live in accordance with the ways that God has for you. He doesn't leave you on your own. It's not, hey, get baptized and then try really hard to be the best person you can be for the rest of your life and getting really frustrated every time you fail. That is not what we're invited into. It is, man, give your life to Jesus and get a spiritual rewiring, a a recoding, a spiritual DNA where the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in you. And he produces within you what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And we become full of love. We become a people that are marked by joy. We become a people that are marked by peace. We become a people that are marked by patience and goodness and gentleness and selflessness and faithfulness, it's like these things just start working them out. We are given a new spiritual DNA that works itself out in the picture, this beautiful fruit in our lives. And guys, I'm just telling you, there is nothing more powerful when you see someone who has suffered. I mean, I'm, I, I, I wish that I could take all of you with me to sit next to this young man in India and listen to him tell his story. Because it makes no sense that he has joy. It makes no sense that he has peace. And yet he's full of it. It is only because of the Holy Spirit living in him. So you're adopted into a new family and you get a new spiritual DNA that begins to work things out in this life in a completely different way. The apostle Peter would say it this way in 2 Peter chapter one. He says, listen, when this happens, the divine power will give you everything you need for a godly life so that you can participate in the divine nature. It's beautiful new family, new spiritual DNA. This third one kind of hit me, you know, uh, the third one is that you're you're constantly prayed for. You're constantly prayed for. Now, I don't know if you've ever had somebody that you knew just prayed for you all the time. For me, when I was in, in another country planting a church, it was my grandmother. She kept every newsletter that I sent home. She kept it you know, where she read her Bible every day. And every day I knew my grandmother was going before Lord Almighty praying for me. Every day. She would send me handwritten notes to tell me what she was praying because she didn't know how to text or email or do any of that stuff. But she would mail them to us the old fashioned way. Every day. And see guys, maybe you don't have anyone in your life who's ever committed to pray for you every day. You don't know the weight of that. Because the reality is when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. You get genetically rewired to be a follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for you all the time. Like Romans 8 says that the Spirit himself is praying for us to try to help us become more of what we were made to be. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is constantly going before the throne of God, praying for you. Jesus himself is praying for you every day all the time you see we get brought into this new family we get this new spiritual dna and we get the privilege of constantly being lifted up and prayed for by god himself like whoa like what does that mean it's amazing it's incredible fourth you get your name added to a new family will you know some of you your parents are just loaded and you just know, like you can live life however you want because you know the time is coming. It's kind uh, kind of morbid. You know, there's gonna come a time that'll be sad, but you know that you have an inheritance waiting for you. You know it, and it gives you a certain sense of freedom, a certain sense of hope of not having to worry about how things are going to go down the road because you know you have an inheritance. And guys, one of the things the New Testament promises over and over again is that when we give our life to Jesus, we become co-heirs with Jesus. We, we inherit all that the owner of the universe has to pass on to his heirs. And, and, and this is not an overstatement. Guys, everything you own, everything that can be owned is actually just on loan to us from the one who made it all. I mean, our nation itself, the United States of America doesn't belong to a government. It doesn't belong to a people. It's God's. Every nation on earth belongs to God Almighty and we are under the impression that we own it and that we get to steward it. And he's going, no, all that's on loan to you. I'm actually going to make that part of the inheritance for all of my kids. Jesus will inherit the entire earth and he will distribute to those who have given their lives and lost their lives for him. We will inherit the riches of the universe. I can't even like, I can't get my mind around it. You get your name added to a new family will. And that new spiritual DNA, that Holy Spirit that lives in us, he's guaranteeing our inheritance. That's what Ephesians 1 says. He's guaranteeing that you will get your inheritance. Part of that inheritance, part of that inheritance is resurrection from the dead. That we don't have to fear death. That we will rise from the dead. Which brings me to number five, okay, new family new spiritual DNA, constantly being prayed for, being put your name on a new family will, and the last part, this is part of the will, immortality, immortality, you will live forever. This is not just a, a neat idea, as you, <laughs> you, you will live forever, you will live forever. You will live forever, it's amazing. I remember I shared this with a woman in Canada one time and she was like, I don't know if I wanna live forever, man. This life is too hard. No, 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 no. You miss it. You miss it. Like, here's the thing is that you live forever with that new spiritual DNA. You live forever with a king that sits on a throne who reigns in justice. No more corrupt leaders. No more global warming. No more earth that is caving in on itself. No more pandemics. No more murder. No more slavery. No more of any of the stuff that just racks us and makes us want to rip our hearts out. None of that is left. It's only the glory of God, the goodness of God, going on forever and ever and ever, and you get to be immortal right there with him. This is what we inherit. This is your inheritance, and your name is on the will. So why do we celebrate when someone goes into the water and then they come out? It's not just like, oh, cool, they got wet. That's awesome, this is fun. No, guys, we're celebrating because Jesus is saving lives. Jesus is raising from the dead. Jesus is giving people a new future, a new eternity. And we believe that heaven is erupting and cheering and we want to erupt and cheer with him. This is what we celebrate. And this is what we will celebrate tonight. And guys, the invitation is open to everyone, everyone. God's not playing favorites. He's like, man, I'm, I'm right here. The invitation is here. Anyone who wants to come anyone who wants to come. You know, we're gonna end our time this morning with with communion the way that we always do. And as we do that, it's like, it's communion. If you didn't get it, it's in the lobby on the way in or you can grab it on the bar or one of these tables. And guys, when we take communion, for those of you that are in that category, you have chosen to trust and follow Jesus. The blood, the body of Jesus, the, the cup and the bread It's reminding you that Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna lay down my life so that I can save yours. He's given it all. He's paid every price. So as you take the cup, man, let your heart, Holy Spirit, will you fill our hearts with gratitude, with, with, with just full of joy. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with love and joy and peace and patience, kindness as we take the cup, as we take the bread. Just help us be aware of what it is that you have done for us and what it is you're doing in us. As you take the bread, let the Lord stir your heart and remind you of what you stepped into. For some of you, you know you need Jesus. And man, man, the, the invitation is open. You can, any number of things, you can fill out this card. You can come talk to us. There'll be some of us at the Respond Banner over here. Some of you are struggling to walk out your faith in Jesus and you just need that family around you to pray. We would love to pray for you over here at the Respond Banner. Some of you have people in your life that need the hope of Jesus. We would love to pray alongside you at the respond banner to pray that they could come to know Jesus. But we're just gonna move into a time of responding. Responding over communion with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Responding and giving our lives to him wholeheartedly. Responding in prayer. Just let the spirit lead you in how you need to respond in all it is that Jesus has held out for you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you, Lord. We need you. We need you to save us. We need you, Lord, to change us and transform us and give us the Holy Spirit to make us more like you. We need you. And so, Lord, will you come? And as we, as we take the cup, as we take the bread, will you just fill our hearts with your Spirit? Will you fill us with a new level of obedience, a new level of just laying ourselves at your feet and letting you be Lord? And Lord, I pray for anyone in the room that has not given their life to you right now. Lord, would you speak to them tenderly? Just speak to them of the deep, deep love you have for them and draw them near to you, Lord. Help us to be a family that knows how to welcome, welcome in brothers and sisters as they give their life to you. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.